All right, here we are with another AmeriCorps alum. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in to the AmeriCorps Connections. I'm playing around with the name a little bit, but I, I feel like this is a better definition of what's actually happening um, on this podcast. Um, so today, what we're doing right now is we are kicking off Earth Month for the month of April. And quite frankly, I feel like Earth month should be every moment of every day. So that's not really a, mo a month. It's just we should all be aware of this globe that's flying through space that we all are inhabiting. Um, so I'm really excited to be kicking off today's conversation with Noah Smock. He's the executive director of the Baltimore Community Tool Bank. And I'm really excited for all kinds of reasons we'll probably get into. Um, but before we get started, I'm Nikki Fiaco, and I'm the brainchild of this AmeriCorps Alums Connection, where I'm just inviting AmeriCorps alums to jump on this uh, this platform and reflect on their, their experience. This month, we are specifically focusing on those that have served in the environment and maybe serving, uh, continuing to doing work in that area. Um, so I'm hoping to highlight those AmeriCorps members that are working in the environment, which I just said, and I'm reading my notes. So that would be me reading my notes again, <laughs> just going to call it out for what it is. Um, so I'm really hoping that through these conversations and these stories of service uh, and the current work that our uh, AmeriCorps alumni are doing, that some of you will be inspired to take a minute and just look around and just relish the the environment and the earth that is around us and and find some reprieve or respect for um the environment around us whether whether you're in a city or in a suburban setting or or another setting um and if you're so inspired to take on some inspiring action to you know pave pound the pavement and and make a movement to do something in this area i encourage you to do that um safely, smartly, and for whatever feels right to you. Um, so again, every as often as I can this month, I'm going to highlight AmeriCorps alumni who have served in environmental uh, positions uh, in their service year and maybe continuing. So today we have Noah Smock, who served in NCCC National Civilian Conservation Corps. Community Corps. Community Corps. I'm I'm so almost there. Um, and so he did that in California and he moved from Ohio out to California, which the city that you lived in in Ohio was called California, right? Uh close. It was Baltimore, Ohio, and now Baltimore. I live in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. So clearly I'm sharing Noah's story totally incorrectly. So I'm gonna turn it over to Noah to talk us through his um service year. And we're going to reflect and go on this journey. So Noah, it, this is this is the Noah show now. Gotcha. And you will have to uh, you know guide guide me as you see fit. <laughs> um, but but certainly, thank you for that that warm intro, and thank you for having me. Um, so my career in service was kind of like uh, a, a backwards fall into something, and I'll I'll talk to you about that. But I did serve a year as a nineteen year old in AmeriCorps NCCC, National Civilian Community Corps. At the time, the campus was in San Diego. So for anybody that knows NCCC, I am definitely dating myself. I was in year five. Uh, don't tell anybody, but we just celebrated 30 years of AmeriCorps. So that should tell you something about how old I am um, or how young I am. So, so yes. I always me, like to say we're lightly sauteed. Yeah. Well, Seasoned, here's lightly sauteed. <laughs> 
I say a couple of things. I say I've been 21 years old for 22 years. And I also say, um, you know, I'm old enough to have some deep experience and young enough to continue to serve with energy. That's great. Uh, yeah, but I, I served a year. So for me, um, and we can get super deep into this, but I'll just give you the preview for right now. Um, I started my year of service. It was a big opportunity for me to leave Ohio and I'm not knocking Ohio. I actually have a lot of respect for it, but I think I was intellectually bored and I lived in the country and I wanted to look out my window and see people, not cows. I think I might prefer the opposite way now, but uh, here I am in Baltimore city, very happy. But I, so, so here was this great opportunity that I, I did not like service was not modeled for me. And this was not something that I necessarily find, found out about through like my rural high school. Um, although they, they oddly kind of gave me an opportunity to find out about it. But when I heard about it and I really started to think about, Hey, this could be a ticket out for me. I, um, I, I had plans for college. I had no money for college and, uh, love my parents, great, nice people, but they were not modeling for me what the steps from a graduating high school mm -hmm. to be being in high school. They, they didn't have experience with that themselves. They were not modeling that for me. So I was, before I had ever heard the term gap year, I was really looking for one. And I found an opportunity to join a service program and through AmeriCorps that would be uh, room and board would be taken care of. That was huge. So I came into this idea of service, thinking about myself, <laughs> uh, thinking about how I could have a cool opportunity, uh, but it did open my eyes and I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, yeah. All, all the way into that. But then my career in service after that, I, I really worked, I worked full-time through, through college. I went to San Diego City College, very proud of that. Then I transferred to a quote unquote four-year university that not as proud of, you know, I paid, I paid for my way. <laughs> uh, I paid them for what I got. And then um, my real career in service started in Baltimore. Long story about how I moved here from San Diego, but I, um, ended up uh, in 2008, uh, starting my real real career in service. And so now I've been serving for, for 15 years uh, in some capacity. So that's such an amazing story and you did it way more justice than I did. Okay. <laughs> I could have. <laughs> you should have something about it. <laughs> yeah, you know a little bit about it. Um, so in your, let's talk a little bit about your NCCC year. Um, just to play, I don't want to dwell there because I think what's important is what we're all doing now. And that's the point of this is that like, we all go through service and it's our personal service story, but I do like to pull out little nuggets for individuals to, who might not have served to be like, wow, you could do that with that experience. So maybe just like one or two things that were nuggets during your service year that you felt either pushed you out of your comfort zone or you learned something that you didn't know, or you still to this day, go back to that experience and remember like, yeah, I learned that lesson during NCCC. Yeah. So the biggest thing I think that I took away personally, and that I, I do think about probably weekly is that, uh, and I'll explain this, but I, I, I learned that I don't, actually believe in a work ethic. I believe in interesting work. If I am mm. interested in the work, I will work very hard. If I'm not interested in the work, I will not. Um, I don't think that this is some form that we are born with, that you have a work ethic or you don't. 
I do think you could have it modeled like in your family and stuff. But the reason I found that out in AmeriCorps was, you know, I mentioned earlier, I was, I only know this in like reflection now, but I would identify the kid that I was, that kid was intellectually bored. I didn't think like that. I didn't say that, but I was bored. And when I got into AmeriCorps, I was not bored anymore. Mm. I was energized and I actually became known on my team as the one willing to do anything and work as long and as hard as necessary. That also was not part of how I defined myself in high school. I was like, sit in the back of the class and make people laugh. Uh, I was bright, but I was a B student because I didn't care. It was not challenging. And when I got into AmeriCorps, I learned that, hey, if I like what I'm doing, if I'm interested, uh, I will work really hard. I'll stay longer. I'll go harder. Um, and that was from a team dynamic. We worked in a team and I also got to contrast myself with other teammates who, you know, no knock on them, but they probably weren't as interested in the work and I didn't see them working, you know, super hard. And we, mm-hmm. we kind of found our levels. That was something that I think could have only happened in a team environment for me. The other thing I'll say about service in general I learned about the complexity of service. So Mm. I definitely as a 19 year old would say, oh, helping people is great, right? Like very generically, always serving people is always great. I did not have a clue in my head about descending on communities, serving from a privileged background. Uh, And I certainly didn't feel like I had one, but I recognize now that I I did in some ways. So that was my first introduction to the complexity of service and how, uh, yeah, more people is not always better. Uh, Going into communities is not a way to do service. Uh, Yeah. Partnering is partnering, but going into and saying, hey, we can help you fix this. um, That's where I got my first introduction to the complexities of service. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just like double click. People say that. I don't know if I like that, but I want to just point out what you what you said about being interested in the work and being inspired. I was thinking being inspired by the work that you're doing. And I feel like to accomplish a service year, because it's not always easy. And NCCC is not the easiest path in AmeriCorps, right? You guys are out there. Um, I had an interview, upcoming interview. Um, I, I, um, chatted with another, actually, she didn't do NCCC. She did a conservation corps in a different, a different uh, stream. And um, they, sur- they um, camped for 10 days at the top of a mountain. Like they literally drove them up to the top of the mountain and they're like, you're going to blaze trails and we'll see you in 10 weeks. Did that same. In- <laughs> yeah. Did you really? Yeah. So that's not like the easiest environment. Like there's, it's not like you're getting up and taking a shower and then going somewhere you're like literally and you're around the same people and all of those things. But I feel like what we can get from a service experience is that inspired work ethic. And and I know you don't like to pair those together. That's not kind of what you were talking about, but it's almost like I, I, you know, you work harder when you have those inspired actions for the project. Now, some things we have to do because we have to do them, but even those hard to do and not wanting to do things, when you know what your outcome is going to be, it's easier to do them. I I feel like that's what a service year can really help because you know, it's going to come to an end, right? Like sometimes this uninspired job stuff when it's not coming to an end in six months is like, wait, what am I doing? You know? Through service, you know yeah. that like I'll be finished in 
I can, I can do anything for three months. And I think that's a really salient point because you, you see yourself in different environments and hey, maybe you don't love all of them, but forging, particularly at a, at a point for young people, forging an identity as an adult really comes from living through some experiences that if everything were always rosy, I mean, that's great if you're just that lucky. But, uh, you know, I, I will say I don't have kids, but I, I feel deeply that if I did, I would highly encourage them to either work in the service industry for two years or do a service year or two years, because those are the experiences that are going to make you truly be able to empathize with other people. Uh, not that it comes automatically, but that's an opportunity to see yourself in a, a new environment uh, and yeah. develop some thinking on your feet skills. Yeah. And I will say I do have kids and I have my daughter. Um, she has a fifth year because of COVID. And I'm like, well, maybe you want to like hold off and try a service year. So um, there's my kids grew up with AmeriCorps and I think they're kind of sick of hearing about it, <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see if we I can get them into that path. <laughs> um, but, and then the other thing that um, I just wanted to circle back around is the complexities of service. And then I, I feel like that might bring us to like where you are now and what your experience was. I think you said in 2004, 2008, when you felt like you were really, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the complexities of service, because I think this is a here and now moment of like rethinking about how we do kind of collective impact or how we work together with communities. And, you know, I know the, who you're working for now and how you the, how that whole thing works, but we'll go there, but let's talk a little bit about the complexities of service and, and when you really felt like you started your service year. And then if you reflect or you can connect it back to NCCC, that's great. But if not, you're not fired from this podcast. That's <laughs> good. You can certainly let yeah. me know if that happens. Just hit okay. a button and I'll just tap out. Um, well, so it's interesting um, and I'll, I'll contextualize it a little bit. So so I had my service year and then I, I was like doing full-time work, full-time school and not in a service-oriented profession um, through the college years. So I kind of had this little seed and I did get this exposure to service, but it didn't germinate until about 10 years later. Uh, so currently, and I'll talk a little bit about the tool bank, I'll also kind of answer the, the unasked question that, that listeners might be having, which is why is the tool bank an environmental organization and, and, and why is this an Earth Month um, organization to feature? So I'll talk to you about that. Um, so the tool bank, we are a radical sharing resource. We share tools, equipment, and expertise with community-based partners. So the, the, the community sector, the organizations who are so often overcommitted, under-resourced, we meet them at that point of need by providing tools and equipment by the hundreds. So 900 shovels, 150 wheelbarrows, um, tables and chairs, which interestingly enough, help in so many diverse ways. When there's a, a cost barrier to these resources, our shared community is not as resilient. So we disrupt that by sharing it. And it is radical sharing, meaning we share everything uh, that we can within reason. Space, we get things shipped to us for organizations that don't have loading docks. We have uh, tools and equipment, obviously, as, as our staple. 
Um, and we also, it's also radical in that it's, it's novel. Um, it is not being done in a streamlined fashion in other places. I encourage it to, to be done for organizations. Um, I'm, I'm not just a tool bank fan. I'm a fan of tool sharing. Um, but for organizations for this sector, we're uniquely doing that in our space um, in, in Baltimore City, but also regionally. So we serve agencies throughout Maryland, uh, Delaware, Pennsylvania. We've got uh, agencies in Virginia. We're in a really good spot to be able to um, have people come to us, save money for their projects, and thereby do more projects. That's like 30,000 foot view of the tool bank. Um, in our work, we are in a hyper-industrial neighborhood in Southwest Baltimore City. Uh, we are less than a mile from M&T Bank Stadium where the Ravens play. We're uh, less than a mile from the Inner Harbor in downtown Baltimore City. So we're very urban, very impervious surface. Uh, and as part of our values of establishing this organization were to be stewards, to be stewards of resources like tools, but also to be stewards of our own footprint, uh, environmentally and, and importantly, environmental justice is social justice, and we understood that. So we had an opportunity to uh, get funding to locate a hyper-urban stormwater management uh, project, but then it became projects. So really, our campus now has two, really three sizable rain gardens at the front of our building that take care of the rooftop runoff from the front slope. In the back of our building, we have a more impressive system, or I wish not more impressive, but bigger system. It repurposes two and a half acres of runoff, including our neighbor's roofs. Wow. And this was just, you know, how they built stuff in Baltimore City in the 20th century. We're all kind of connected. So they were just routing stormwater to the back of our facility. It was going straight into the drain. Mm -hmm. less than a mile from the bay with no filter. So whatever condition the water was going in, it was just going to be that nasty when it got when it got to the Chesapeake Bay, which is where we already live. So we took an opportunity to build a cistern system that stores, it's a flow-through system, so it both stores water, but is also constantly filtering water through the system into raised beds that then clean the water. Not completely, it's not like you're going to drink it, but it's going to go back into the system cleaner than when it came to us. Mm -hmm. And those plants create pollinator habitat and all the good things. Uh, I could do a whole ecology lesson, but I know, <laughs> I know, right? I have to like I spend all my energies deciding like what not to say because it's, it's so much. Stuff. Um, but the long story short is we repurpose more than a million gallons of stormwater runoff annually in Baltimore City, and we also use it as anchors to educate other people. So even just this week, we've had two field trips. Students as young as fourth grade were coming in here building sample rain gardens and talking about absorption of water, filtration of water. Uh, and we're not educators by trade and we're not environmentalists by training, but we are good citizens and we have an opportunity and that's why we lean into that work. Yeah, that was such a great, uh, just, oh, and, and folks like, this is like just touching the surface of what the Baltimore Community Tool Banks Bank does in our region. And Noah, I'm sure you'll talk about Tool Bank USA because it's not just in, we're not just privileged to have it in our city here in Baltimore, um, but there's tool banks all over the country. Um, I want it, I want to just, I want to linger in one spot for a moment because I feel like when you were explaining how the tool bank shares its tools, it's almost like tools is a metaphor. 
it's a metaphor for like inclusiveness. It's a metaphor for accessibility. Um, so I don't know, what are your, do, like, I just pulled that out. It's not like I gave you any time to think about it, but like, I feel like the way that the tool bank does radical sharing and that idea of it, we could almost think about tools as, as a metaphor and almost challenge people who are listening to this. Like what tools could you use? Like different tools, whatever that might be. Like I have right. a gated yard. Could I have people drop packages off at my yard because it's gated? You know, I don't know. That's, I love that point. And, and it, and I never want to stray from the fact that it's very serious that we loan tools, like actual yes. tools, hammers and drills yes. and stuff. But you're so right because this concept of sharing, that just happens to be our lane. And we're going to keep doing that because we have the relationships that can bring the tools to us. And that's what everyone's familiar with. But honestly, if we're talking about what does a, a, what, what does a society deserve to, or, or how, do they get, how do they become resilient or stay resilient, it's going to be so much more. Um, this is going to be one thing that we we can share and offer. And I didn't get this job because I'm I'm a tool nerd. I, I learned I've learned a lot on the job. I got I got this job because importantly the board at the time understood that social justice was the focus and that we had a responsibility to share our resources, which happened to be physical actual tools, but could be so much else. And that's why there's permission to go into the spaces that. You know, as long as we don't sacrifice the core program, which is the tool lending, uh, if we think it's a good idea, we we go that direction. And our our board has been like that traditionally, and the the leadership reflects that even more now because that attracts the same type of thinker. Uh, and and I'll give the full disclosure: uh, we are honored to have you on our board. But importantly, we met you before in the driveway loading up tools. That's how we get our board members. So. Uh, this is not an inside job in, in the least. It's it's very much someone that, uh, you know, we connected through our very service. Yeah. And and we'll just go there. Like so. And actually, it was during my AmeriCorps service year that I found the tool bank. And I think it was ends it ends it. Um, what is his name? I feel like we were talking about him the other day. Um, Brian. No. Steve Anstead. Yes, I believe that he was the one who introduced me to the concept of the tool bank. And um, I'll I'll just tell you all, I had um, a, a, MP, a Mazda MP3 minivan and I pulled up in that docking station. And let me tell you, I can fit 50 shovels, uh, 50 rakes, two wheelbarrows, a couple buckets of um, gloves and a bunch of other items in the back of an MP3. So I'm just telling you, like it's and it was accessibility right for for me as a volunteer coordinator when i was serving through americorps um you know i was working on environmental education programs within regional parks and those regional no way were the maintenance crews going to let us use their shovels and rakes you know that's like county property uh, yeah. so i had to find resources for you know volunteers who wanted to clean up a, a trail or something when, and think about it too, you know, that I, I am very familiar with that not sharing because, hey, that was my budget. That's my trash. Yeah. I spent $20 on it for 1997. And, and, <laughs> uh, and I have an experience before I joined the tool bank, they were the, the tool bank, the, the board as it formed in, in Baltimore uh, was a board first. And then they said, hey, let's do some informal market research. Who would use this? 
So I was actually working at Living Classrooms Foundation at the time, mm. pre, uh, pre-opening of the tool bank. But I, I knew a man who was on the board, just happened to be connected to him through Living Classrooms. And he was doing the uh, Less Ireland. He worked for Black & Decker. And then uh, his passion project became bring a, bringing a tool bank to Baltimore. Um, and he said, hey, can I pick your brain about something? Uh, here's this concept of a tool bank. Would you use it? I had, no joke, the week before, begged my boss to buy 20 trash grabbers, which cost just less than two, $400, so 1997 because mm. we don't pay tax. Um, and it was like a capital campaign. It was like, can we please, please, please get 20 trash grabbers so I can engage 40 volunteers to pick up trash on the only wetlands space in the inner harbor. And uh, he said, yes, but it was so reluctant that when I got those trash grabbers, I wrote my name on them and myself mm-hmm. locked them up and did not share because that was my budget. That was like, I'm not even going to let my colleagues use them because they're going to abuse them or they'll, get a, they'll, they'll lose them. And I worked really hard for that. So I had this kind of like protective, like sh- shoulders clenched mentality about tools. Yeah. And so he said, would you ever use this service if we brought it to Baltimore? And my only question was, how soon can you open? Because <laughs> you can get 20 trash grabbers from the tool bank for, tw- wait a minute, 60 cents a trash grabbers for $12. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that my MP filling up my minivan, I think rarely cost me more than 40 bucks. You know, I mean, it just, it, it, you know, it, so when we, so yes, yes, all the things of yes. Um, yeah. I also, you had mentioned, um, so you meant, so we we're talking about environmental and Earth Week. And I, and, uh, you know, every time we talk about the system that's in the back, of the tool bank, I'm always blown away. And say that again, how many acres of water? So it's it's two and a half acres of rooftop. Okay. The rooftop and we get our stats, by the way, from Biohabitats Inc., a bioengineering firm. I'm sure they would want me to say it better than that, but, um, but a, a real professional firm that's based here in Baltimore. And so for every inch of rain that falls on our roof, we are repurposing uh, the systems combined. 24,550 gallons of water. So on average annual rainfall, that's how we scale it up over a million. Um, and it's it's just an enormous system, but there's an enormous opportunity because that water was just like white water yeah. rafting in the back of our facility when it rained before we built it. Yeah. And you also use the water to uh, clean tools, right? Yeah, and that's another important point. So, so we use we we store some of the water. And we use that as a reserve to wash our tools with with gray water, um, and that means that we're not turning a tap. So it's not only using something as a better you know reuse. We're not the, all of the energy footprint of treated water that's in our tap system is just saved. We're just not using that energy in that water. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I wanted to touch base on when that you mentioned was the social social justice piece. Um, and you know, we're talking about Earth Month and like I don't think social justice has a month. Again, I think it's along with Earth Month. It should just be every day of every moment. Like we should always just thinking about like our actions and how we're how are we bringing justice to the situation. Um, do you want to speak a little bit to even even your like definitely the tool bank, but also Noah's bank, like, like, right. Like 
how your service has shaped that. And we don't come from like, I was not, well, I don't know how his model. My stepdad was um, off the boat Sicilian. Um, so he was an immigrant and like literally dropped out of high school when he was nine years old. Um, and, you know, he raised me from the age of two. I have two dads. That's pretty cool. Um, and I have a mom. Okay. That's getting way into Nikki's history so that we don't need to do that. But, um, you know, so I was in a family that spoke Sicilian, like they spoke a different language. And sometimes I understood what they were saying. And I was like, I don't know if you guys should be talking about that like that, but you know what I mean? So all of this to say that like, we all come from different backgrounds, but we are in a moment in time that we need to look at where we are now and how we want to show up. Absolutely. And and I'll tell you some things that really come from a lot of reflection. Um, but before I do, let me just say that my Sicilian grandmother would so appreciate that you said spoke Sicilian. Yes. Other than that Italian because... Yes. All of the questions at the weddings were not, where are you from? Where's your, where are your people from? Like country. They're like in, in Italy, where are your people from? It's Sicilian. And I'll just share one other like little personal note about Nikki's life. My stepfather was from the town over from my great grandparents who were also from Sicily. So my stepfather would sit, would come to Christmas dinner at my paternal father's house, which this just shows that you can actually have a relationship with divorced parents. That's cool. And they would sit in the corner and they would talk Sicilian in their mother tongue to each other. And it was like the most beautiful. And these are two folks that came over through Ellis Island. And then they, they, they were chatting in Sicilian with my stepdad. So I don't know what that has to do with earth month. I might even cut Everything. this out. I don't know. Lineage. Right. Yeah. Okay, go on. <laughs> well, yeah. So the tool bank, this concept of, of social justice, we so we have a responsibility, not um, not a uh, a thing that we do if we have time. We have a responsibility to listen to our partners and to identify inventory and service that reflects what they need, so they can do service. Mm -hmm. And a big question that we so we have a lot of questions that we ask ourselves weekly one is uh what is an example of empathetic approach that we use give us a real example from any staff member to share this is how we showed that we were listening to somebody and mm -hmm. that we developed what we were doing based around their need and that is conceptually easy i think i think it's also very hard to be good at doing that so it needs a constant check. It's not a checklist item like, boom, I did that last week. It's no, it's what did you do this week? The other thing, uh, and I think sharing our backgrounds is important because if you would have told me the concept of privilege when I was that 19-year-old kid that joined AmeriCorps that had no money for college, um, bright, but not a lot of direction, and grew up in a house that like heat didn't reach the second floor very well in an old farmhouse. Like if you just said, you have privilege, I would have thought, well, that's not how I identify. I recognize now, uh, particularly, you know, priv privilege is something that's attributed to you. So I can walk in a room and I have privilege because other people give it to me, even mm -hmm. if I don't feel like I have it. So white privilege, male privilege. Yeah. I also know what it's like to be in a room with only men. I know what it's like to be in a room with only white people. That is, that is an opportunity for me to use that privilege, that cover that I get to try to make the world the place that we, we all want to live in. 
So I say all that, that's like both a personal thing, but it's also the ethos of the tool bank, which is asking ourselves, uh, well, starting with the recognition that we have privilege and that we are gatekeepers for a resource. We make decisions about who gets tools and access to tools. Mm. Um, we don't shirk that responsibility. We don't pretend, oh, it's not my choice. It just does. No, we're here. We're stewards. What we do, how we get the word out there about a job, about a resource, about anything, it matters to who, who ends up using the resource. Um, so we have to ask ourselves this question in that we have privilege. What did we do with our privilege today, this week, this year? What did we do with it to make the world the place that we want to live in under these guiding values of sharing and, and justice? Uh, and that goes everywhere. And that we should always have an answer for that. I should be able to tell you within the last 48 hours what I did with my privilege to um, not condescend to share my time with somebody, but what did I really do to make the uh, society that I live in, the city that I work and live and love in better? Um, so, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's a... Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really strong reflection, and I, I, you know, it's a hard question to answer. I don't even know if it was a question, but it's just it's something that we all should be thinking about. And where I my house that I grew up in, my first one, we had a fireplace that heated the house. Yeah, <laughs> I remember getting dressed in the morning in front of the fireplace because we didn't have. We finally got a wall heater, but that just meant the kitchen was warm. So. Um, I get it. Um, so, okay. So that's, that is Noah came into the space now at the tool bank and it's an amazing place. Um, I can attest to that for so many reasons. Um, and you also are hosting an AmeriCorps member at the site at the tool bank and you have done so for several years. Yeah, we have three years of service from Volunteer Maryland, a program. Um, we've done one-off projects with like NCCC teams that were Baltimore-based or at least in the, in the region. But yeah, for our service, we had two years, one, one uh, AmeriCorps member in Volunteer Maryland that they called Volunteer Maryland coordinators back then. We had for two years, same, same young man. And then uh, we're currently also working with Volunteer Maryland with an AmeriCorps member serving as our volunteer coordinator. Yep. And there's a fun fact about everybody that's working at the tool bank, which is four out of four hundred percent of our staff has served an AmeriCorps year or years. Yep. Or Absolutely. Is, <laughs> is serving. Yep. That's cool. Um, okay. So circling back to Earth Month um, and this group of AmeriCorps alumni that we have, which is, I guess, 1.2 million strong now. Um, what do you reflecting on how many of us there are across the country and fun fact, there's a interview coming up here where I actually interviewed an AmeriCorps member living in Germany. So it's, we're everywhere. We're not just in the United States. We served in the, the United States, but what do you, what would your biggest dream or thought that we could do as a collective, strong, powerful voice with, you know, almost a million people who've gone through this service? in a perfect world <laughs> or not perfect world. Yeah, I, I, there's so many things and I've, I've been somewhat involved in some of the 
alumni space um, after not being involved with it, with it for, for a while, but still like fondly uh, recalling my teammates. But so if you think about that number, what does that mean for political voice? And I don't mm-hmm. pretend that it's a monolithic, you know, a service member does not have the same political views person to person to person. But if you have an experience in service and if you're really in, if you've really waded into the complexities of service and that type of um, thing that we were talking about earlier, I think it will give you a, a more informed vantage point about uh, what a shared society could look like and, and, and the nuances of, of service, um, the needs, but also the resources we have to meet those needs. And that political voice to me can be very strong. I mean, like lobbying for good or lobbying for service. Um, the other piece, I man, if I were the 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 king of the alumni network and I could just make things happen, uh, I'm sure it's more complex than kings making things happen. But let's pretend. Um, I would use that as my. Uh, jo- if I had a job to post, I would post there first. If I mm. was for a job, I'd look there first. So this could be like a business network on steroids, on service steroids, um, because we should be in group r- recruiting people who have a service background because it's a it's an important element of the complexity of our our very society. And of course, that's not every single person that ever served has that. But I think as a group, it's it's a unique set of exposures and um, experience. So I think you're probably one. Uh, there are so many people that I um, alumni that I've interviewed that I've asked that question has have mentioned the the political piece. Um, and like I said, before we even started recording, like this is Nikki's podcast. I don't work for anybody. So I don't really have to answer anybody just yet. <laughs> so if that's something that, um, since it seems to be a topic that comes up, it might be something that this little podcast thing that Nikki's trying out, uh, we might tinker around a little bit and see what, see what we can do. I've, you know, I'm really, I'm getting voices from across the country and, um, and internationally. And so that would be something that would, and I love the idea of cre- if really structuring a business network, right? Like right now, I I feel like it's kind of, I don't feel like there's a, a full structure, um, but that might be something again that maybe um, can take some traction and we can start structuring that in some way where the first thing that you think of is um, AmeriCorps Alumni Network. Like, like let's let's go there and find the people to, to fill these spots. And that's the, that's also the, that's a recruitment thing too. That's, hey, if, mm. if this is true, this is a network you wanna be invested in, um, a part of. And I just found out, so the current work that I'm doing, we have VISTA members and I didn't know as much about VISTA because I was I had spent so much time in state and national, but VISTA members after their service years completed successfully, they actually can consider that one year of, um, of working for the federal government. So they're already one step ahead if they are to apply for uh, jobs within the federal government. So like, it, it, it just seems like this is a no brainer. Um, two things. Number one, um, I wanted you to just touch on real fast before I ask my final question about what we should do more of or less of <laughs> to protect our environment. Can you just really quickly give a shout out to um, Toolbank USA? 
Um, and I'll drop that link in the show notes for sure. But like, like who they are and what they are and where they are and all those kinds of things. Yeah. So, so everything I'm talking about with the Baltimore Community Tool Bank is, is what we are here in this city. Uh, and there are eight city-based affiliates, including Baltimore, so seven other cities. It originated in Atlanta. So there was a standalone tool bank that existed since the early 90s. And in the mid-2000s, there was this concept to replicate and some national business partners that were also interested in that. Uh, so Toolbank USA was formed uh, in 2008, and then replication sites uh, with their own unique little things, but, but still replication sites, started in Charlotte. So it was the Atlanta Toolbank, and then Charlotte came online 2012, uh, 2011. Baltimore and Cincinnati. So we were the third ever tool bank in the country in the second expansion. And then Cincinnati, pretty much the same time, but, but we got them by a month. Uh, and that was in 2012. So we've just celebrated 10 years of service last year. Uh, and then followed by, in no particular order, Richmond, Phoenix, Houston, and Chicago. So those are the eight, but there are tool banks happening in other places too. They're just not like city-based affiliates. There's disaster relief. It's a whole TDS, tool bank disaster services. It's a whole part of what tool bank USA does. Um, we serve in natural disasters, including pandemics, uh, not to say the C word, uh, but we, you know, we, we loan tools for free in those instances, whereas usually you're paying a nominal uh, three to 4% on the dollar for a tool uh, based on their retail price. But yeah, that's Tool Bank USA and they do amazing, great things. We're bringing new tool banks online all the time. So the idea is that every city deserves a resource like this. Um, a lot of cities are doing it in a different way. It's not a streamlined tool bank model, but it's like tool sharing because that's what organically is needed. Uh, so it's really exciting to be part of that national network. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And so I just think that's helpful um, for folks that are listening to this who might have a tool bank next to them and didn't realize like y'all you, you could rent like like generators or coolers or water jugs you know <laughs> all those things that you don't want to store in your garage just like you can oh, just yeah. use them for the week or whatever um and so finally just for the for the month of earth month and um in your experience of NCCC and what you're doing now you know what are some things that like maybe we can do more of um whether it's with our organizations or just personally, and then what do you, what would you consider us maybe trying to do less of in regards to impacting um, our local environment and then also our global environment? Yeah, so I always take this down to like a super personal level, uh, and I'll even share uh, I'll share two environmental tidbits because it's it's Earth Month and every day is Earth Month. Um, so I think of my actions in the world, and I am not a perfect actor. Uh, I'm, I'm working to be better all the time. But I do think a good question to ask yourself as an individual is, how can I do the thing that I'm trying to do with the least amount of resources possible? Mm. Sometimes that's like, how do I not take up all of the space in a room just because I have a lot of things to say? But it's also about literally, how much water do I need to do this? How much um, piece, how many pieces of paper do we need to use in a given day? So I will never claim to be a perfect actor. I drove to work in a gas powered car. I'm trying to change that, but I'm like a lot of people, you know, we have inherited 
what normal is and we're mm-hmm. cultivated in a certain way. And um, even though I would love to be riding a bike to work, it's not super practical for the lumber pickups. So maybe I'll get an electric car when I have the budget for it. But in any case, I, I don't claim to be a perfect actor, but I can share two things like on a daily um, that I think are important. Um, one is I do not find the need to run the shower water when I'm lathering. <laughs> when I'm soaping up, turn the water off because I don't need it. It's just hitting my back or my front, whatever I'm not doing. <laughs> I turn the water off and I turn it back on when I'm ready to rinse. So small, but that's like, okay. how do we get away with the less amount of things? Um, and another one, and this is something we pick up a lot of bottles of like plastic bottles that are litter. Whole other thing that we do, we build floating wetlands at the tool bank mm. to deploy to Baltimore waterways to help filter water through native plants, root systems. But the flotation device for those is um, upcycled waste, that litter, uh, plastic bottles. And they're easily floating. The bottles are floating in whatever waterways and getting to us because people put the lid on them. So even if they ah. like littered, if you think about it, the bottle sinks if it doesn't have a lid and the lid itself is a second piece of litter. It becomes one if you put it together. Now, I'm not saying that people should litter. Uh, so you promote. So if you're going <laughs> to litter, put the, put the cat on. back on. No, but think about it. Think about accidental. Yeah. You know, like even if you're recycling that bottle, which if you think that's, you know, the best thing you can do with it, put the lid on it. And if it happens to fall out of the recycling truck, maybe someone can pick it up and it won't be at the bottom of our waterways uh, for the next how many thousand years. That is probably the most unique tip that I probably will hear this entire (laughs) month. This is why you invited me. (laughs) But I'll let you know at the end of the month if that was the most, I really like that. So if you're gonna litter, just put put the lid on. Don't litter. Don't litter. Just put the litter. No, the other funny thing is, that's an observation from me. I'm sure somebody could be like, no, you shouldn't put it on. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I do think you should think critically about these things. I think you should definitely think critically about this stuff. Um, well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. And, um, you know, like I said, I know you could be a million other places and I'm really happy that you spent the last 45 minutes chatting with me. Um, and I, I really feel like uh, everything that you've said, people really get something out of it and and if anything at least a free or a new resource with the tool banks around the the country um so as we close is there any last thoughts that you wanted to thoughts or resources um that you want to share well the last thing that i will say just from an observation perspective we work with over 1500 volunteers a year and these are corporate higher education groups all kinds we see that women make up uh, about 70% of who chooses to serve. And I would love to see more of everybody, non-binary, uh, but men, men as well. I, it, it seems like, I don't know whether it's acculturation or, or what it is, but uh, men don't opt into this field very often. And I think mm-hmm. it, it needs everybody. And I also just think everyone should serve. So. Uh, just an observational anecdotal point. Um, this is the call to all the 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 dudes out there. Um, grab a grab an implement of construction and serve. Yeah, that's great. Um, definitely seeing more people uh, serving would be amazing. 
So thank you again, Noah, for your time here um, on the AmeriCorps Connection. And um, oh, as soon as I wrangle another environmental alumni in, I'll have a conversation, we'll record it, and you'll be able to tune in. Uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Noah. Thank you. Thanks for what you do.